Hey everybody and welcome into the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast. I am your host, Justin Jackson, and in today's episode, we'll be talking about the World Series. We'll be discussing the NFL, what happened last week and this week, upcoming week, along with little news. We'll have our very successful sports betting segment called Jack's Pack. We'll be talking about the NCAA almost returning to a full slate, and we'll have our best for last, which will be a recap and a discussion on the Thursday night clash between the Philadelphia Eagles and the New York Giants. Now, again, you can find the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, along with the show sports page on Twitter at JTime Sports, all caps. I repeat, at JTime Sports, all caps. That does breaking news on MLB, WNBA, NBA, NFL, MMA, pretty much all major sports. That's where you can find your information quickly, efficiently, and accurately. Now, again, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the show is on at JTime Sports at Twitter for breaking news and updates and things like that. Now, I hope you guys sit back and get ready to learn something. All righty, everybody, and welcome in. Now, we have a jam-packed show today, a very great show this week. And we're going to start off with the World Series. Now, again, I've been promising you guys for the last two or three weeks when the playoffs started that, you know, once things got down to the nitty gritty, that baseball was going to be a very prominent part of the show. And it's the World Series, so it doesn't get much bigger than this. Now, obviously, baseball are in a bubble, so they're playing in the Texas Rangers brand new stadium in Dallas. Of course, they did that for the conference series and now this series as well, the World Series, because the Dodgers have played three straight series inside of the Dallas, the new stadium for the Texas Rangers in Dallas. But speaking of the Los Angeles Dodgers, so they took game one behind a dominant batting and Kershaw performance. Clayton Kershaw has his struggles. We all know them. They've been well documented where he's not a bad pitcher in the postseason by any means. But if you take his regular season numbers and you separate them out, he's arguably the greatest pitcher of all time. And arguably our generation is Sandy Koufax. I mean, his numbers in the regular season are absolutely ridiculous and his awards speak for them. But in the postseason, he becomes a little bit more mundane. And when you go from an all time level to a good player, obviously it looked at as a struggle because it only happens during the postseason. Now, there is reasons for this. Kershaw is known as what they call a workhorse pitcher. He pitches 200 innings a year. He takes the ball every five days. It's not a situation where, oh, man, Kershaw's going to miss his start. He scratched his week. Or Kershaw's going to miss two or three starts with a back injury or elbow injury. Or he's only going to pitch five innings today because we're trying to steal the rest and steal innings for him throughout the season. He's going to pitch 200 innings. He's going to go every five days. Like I said, he's known as a workhorse pitcher. So... I'm thinking that if I had to psychoanalyze him or analyze his struggles, I would look at the struggles as more of a system of literally just wearing down. When you take them out for 200 innings and then you're your team's best pitcher for the last seven to eight years and people depend on you every time to go out and get a win because you you pretty much are in charge of getting the win. And that is a situation where it could just wear down physically and even a little mentally because so much pressure is on you especially in the playoffs, that they have to pencil in, okay, if Kershaw starts twice as series as two wins, and then we'll have to get two wins from other people. So 
having the shortened baseball season, only playing 60 games, he is effectively in mid-season form because a regular baseball season is 162 games. Only playing 60, you get about a third of your normal appearances. So he's basically right smack dad in the middle of what would be considered his mid-season form, which is when he's one of the best pitchers of all time. He had a dominant game one. He went six innings, only allowed a single run, and the bats for the LA Dodgers helped him big time by scoring eight runs. When you've got guys like Will Smith and Mookie Betts and Jock Peterson and Cody Bellinger, and those guys just absolutely swinging the wood and laying the wood on balls, it's hard to beat that team because the Dodgers are going to score. So if they can get good bullpen play, especially they can get their pitching staff, their starting pitcher, whoever it is, to get them six good innings and push the bullpen back as far as they can, the LA Dodgers should win this series. Now, if you check my Twitter timeline, I didn't predict this series. I wasn't really versed. At first, I was going to go Dodgers in five. Then I leaned to more Dodgers in six. The more I started learning about the Rays, who I picked correctly to be in the World Series, high five to us. The Dodgers were a shocker. I didn't think they were going to come back through one. Uh, I was wrong there. I was almost wrong on both teams because the Astros made that far too interesting against the Rays coming back from 3-0 and were, I mean, in a battle in Game 7 to get to the World Series to face these Los Angeles Dodgers, which would have been the second time those two teams would have played in the World Series in the past four years because they went at each other during the Astros cheating scandal was the year that they played the Dodgers. Obviously, Dodgers stands Mookie Betts. So, who's arguably, I think, one of the best players in baseball. We'll get to him a little later. So, then, you know, they play the next day. And the Rays won. Fairly convincingly, although the scoreboard won't dictate that. Um, the Rays showed signs of life at the end of Game 1. And those signs of life carried into Game 2. At the end of Game 1, they were down several runs, but the bases were loaded. And they had a batter at the plate. And you're thinking to yourself, man, one swing of the bat, this can go from 8-3 to 8-7. And now with the Dodgers having bullpen issues that they have, how viable is maintaining this lead shrinks to one run? Because if you have a four or five run lead, you keep your closer out, you keep your best setup guy out, you keep your best middle reliever out, honestly, with a five run lead. Well, if all of a sudden it shrinks to one do you hurry up and get your best middle reliever and your closer warmed up in the bullpen to come in the game? It seriously affects strategy from game two because even if you win it, now you have to rely on your best people to get you there and your best members of your bullpen, which is already not a strength of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And avoiding the situation that they avoided, Deep in turn did not force them to bring out their best people in game one. But like I said a few seconds ago, the momentum that the Tampa Bay Rays got at the end of game one, finding a couple of runs to get on the board, having that base loaded situation where they're a swing of the bat away from being down one. They carried it over into game two. Now it started off slow. Neither team get on the board for the first three innings or so. But then the Rays got on the board and they started to pour on. Um, the Dodgers pulled their pitcher after one and a third inning. So he got four outs and then he was out of the game and that triggered the bullpen. Now, it was a situation where Dave Roberts felt comfortable doing it in game two instead of game one, A, because you want to keep Kershaw's confidence up, B, because there's an extra day. So they didn't play Thursday. 
and they're going to play Friday, which is when the Dodgers are going to bring out their ace. But they had a real good battle in game two. Uh, the Dodgers never really felt like they were threatening. There was a couple of moments where, you know, as a guy on base, Mookie comes to the plate and you're thinking, is Mookie going to have another moment? You know, he's had two great web gems in the conference series. And you're thinking, man, he's going to have a big swing of the bat here and really tip it. Or Cody Bellinger comes up and you're like, man, they could just use a big home run and a right back in this thing. And they got a couple of shots, but the Rays just kept pushing away and pulling away. And Tampa Bay's only lost one game all season. I believe that's something like 22 and one or 23 and one when they score five more runs. So when they got to six, uh, you can check the Twitter timeline at J Time Sports. You, um, I tweeted, man, they've only lost you know one game all season, scoring five or more runs, and the trend held true as they held on to win game two. Tampa Bay is a very, very deep team. No real superstars on the roster because pro-rated Mookie Betts and Clayton Kershaw make basically the same amount of money as the entire Tampa Bay Rays team. So that was something that's very like a shocker. It's like Moneyball versus Moneyball, but in two different contexts. The Dodgers are spending. They got Kershaw. They got Mookie Betts. They've got... Jock Peterson and Cody Bellinger and Will Smith and all these guys who maybe are not making a lot of money right now, but they're going to make a lot of money very, very soon. And then the Rays are analytically driven. They are finding value at every position and stuff like that. And so the Rays got a great starting pitching night out of their guy and the Dodgers didn't get one. So they was in the bullpen. They were forced to go into it. Now, speaking of Clayton Kershaw, the manager, Dave Roberts, has already said that Kershaw is going to go in game five and the Dodgers are going to roll up their ace in game three. Now, if their ace wins the game, which he's an ace, so let's say he does, the Dodgers are up 2-1. In a situation like this, if Clayton Kershaw, let's say the Dodgers go up 3-1. Let's just say the Dodgers go up 3-1. They're a better team. I say they're going to win in six. The Dodgers go up 3-1. Do you put Kershaw out of the lineup or do you start Kershaw and then tell your ace hey on three days rest you might have to pull a Madison Bumgarner and go pitch us if Kershaw gets rocked and then we're you know fourth inning and we're pulling Kershaw you got to go in and pitch three innings or it's all hands on deck I mean it's the World Series so I wonder if Tampa Bay would do the same because they didn't get the best inning out of their game one starter do they roll him back in game five, game six out of the bullpen? Same thing with their game two started. You know, he had a pretty good night out. Do you roll him in and tell him, hey, you know, you might have to be ready to go and relieve some innings, two, three innings. Maybe go get three batters out. So I love the mechanism of the World Series because it's not like you're playing for tomorrow. It's not like, man, Kershaw just got rocked. But obviously, we're not going to mess up our rotation in the regular season. Or, man, Charlie Morton just got rocked. We're not going to mess up our rotation of the regular season. In the World Series, there is no tomorrow, effectively. Especially once you start getting to somebody has three wins and every game becomes an elimination game, you're rolling out pitchers on short rest. You're rolling out, you know, pitchers on short rest starting. You are had a starter pitch two days ago, six innings, but now you need them to get two innings out in relief. I mean, it's just all kind of stuff that's happening in the World Series because of the mechanisms. And because there's no tomorrow, you're not pitching for another day. Now, there's a lot of swagger going on in these playoffs. I think it's a good thing. Baseball has been dead as a doornail. 
the past 10 years in terms of how people celebrate. I mean, all the unwritten rules. You can't look at a home run. Don't bat flip. Don't, you know, get around the bases with some speed when you knock it out the park. Don't taunt anybody. Don't showboat. And I am enjoying the fact that the unwritten rules are becoming a lot more lax, especially in this playoff run. You've got guys hitting home runs and dropping the bat and basically popping their shoulder out of place because they bat flip so hard. There's a lot of energy. They're yelling at their own benches, which is something I think you should always be able to do. Baseball is having a lot more energy. I mean, the NFL for a long time was called the No Fun League because they were anti-celebration and the ratings dipped just a hair. But when the celebrations came back, that became, you know, every time they do a celebration, now it's like it's all over the NFL Twitter. It's all over Bleacher Report. It's getting ton of free play. But now bat flips, celebrations, home runs, and all that stuff is all over the different sports pages because it's starting to give fun and excitement back into the game of baseball, which is something they've been missing since the days of Manny Ramirez in Boston and A-Rod in the Yankees and you know, Hunter Pence and some of the other guys that had a little bit of a personality that Yasiel Puig that was maybe looked at a little differently, looked at down upon me. Yasiel Puig was basically run out of baseball at a certain point because of his attitude. And he wasn't just a quiet guy in the slump. He talked. He was brash. He was brazen. And so I think that having more personality and having guys show off their personality is a good thing. Now, looking to game three. I predict the Dodgers are going to win that game. I would say five to two. Um, there's a parlay that's popular that says it's going to be a total under eight. So I would take the under there, clearly. Uh, I'm thinking five to two Dodgers, and they'll take a commanding 2 1 lead, and then they'll be crossing their fingers that they can get game four to set up Kershaw to end it in game five. But that is all I have for the World Series. It's been a great series so far. By the time we come back, we'll be have a World Series champion. So either Tampa Bay will have two professional championships. We have the Tampa Bay Lightning of the NHL already have the hockey championship, obviously. Or LA will have two champions because they the Los Angeles Dodgers would join the Los Angeles Lakers in being champions of their prospective sports. But up next, we will be shifting to the NFL and talk about what's going down there. All right, guys, and we are back. And now we're going to shift to the NFL and talk about what happened in a great week of NFL football. Our first one in a while that was not dictated or it wasn't felt like it was dictated by COVID. You know, like COVID caused a great player to be out like the Patriots were down Cam Newton or something like that. So this is a great week of football. And just to give a quick recap of what happened in week six. We had the Chiefs and the Bills. Now, the Chiefs attacked the Bills through the ground. I mean, this is the first time in the Patrick Mahomes era where they ran the ball more than they threw it. Mahomes only had 225 yards and two touchdowns, but rookie Clyde Edwards-Alaire went for a buck 61 on the ground and a score or two. I can't remember if he scored twice, but I definitely remember he scored once. And now this team gets to add Le'Veon Bell. So at first with the Chiefs, like the Bills did, we're going to make you run the ball because eventually in their head, you're going to get impatient and you're going to try and throw it. Well, that didn't happen. The Chiefs kept running the ball when they backed up all the safeties and the linebackers were playing seven yards deep. 
Pat Mahomes with audible, hand the ball off to Edward Zilaire, hand the ball off to Darrell Williams, Damian Williams, Darrell Williams, my bad about that. And then they would just run the ball for seven yards. I believe at one point they were averaging like nine yards a pop on the ground. It was absolutely ridiculous. Josh Allen is out of the MVP race. He was a dark horse to begin with, but up until about five minutes left in the fourth, he had about 65 yards of passing. And so that all but done with the uh, Buffalo Bills. And with the Bills at one point, seeing they were going to run away from the division, run away from everybody in the AFC East, they're now only two games ahead of the Patriots and one game ahead of the Miami Dolphins. Speaking of the Miami Dolphins, they won 24-0 over the JV football team known as the New York Jets. However, they decided, hey, we're going to start Tua. So apparently that crushed Ryan Fitzpatrick. He said he was crying all day. He didn't understand it. He didn't know what, what he'd done to lose his job. But I, I, unfortunately, Ryan Fitzpatrick, you lost the job when Tua Tagovailoa was picked fifth. It was only a matter of time. And considering when they did it, I'm thinking that this was the plan the entire time. You got six weeks, so you got two in the building for two, three months. You can see how healthy he is, watch him in practice, and then now you give him two weeks to prepare. So you announce he's a starter on a Monday. He prepares all week, and now he is ready to go when it comes to the L.A. Rams, who they play in week eight, and it gives two or two weeks to prepare. I think part of the reason why he's playing is the Joe Burrows of the world and the Justin Herberts of the world who as rookies are coming in and playing very, very well. And you're thinking, well, the number one picks on the field doing great and the number six picks on the field doing great. Maybe the number five pick should get on the field and see what he can do with a clearly not as bad as we thought Miami Dolphins football team. The first game in the post Dan Quinn era, they won. 40 to 23. Yeah, it was pretty convincing. I mean, only the only thing the Vikings had going for it consistently was that nobody can guard Justin Jefferson. The kid's a freak. He's a rookie receiver at LSU, and he is legitimately, it seems, always open and always in the end zone, dancing and doing the gritty. That's kind of his thing. I mean, he seems to be always open and always there. Well, spoiler alert for Jack's pack. That whole Browns might win thing. Yeah, that went left. Uh, about six minutes into the game. The Pittsburgh Steelers dominated the Cleveland Browns 38-7. Baker Mayfield and Odell Beckham watched the last eight minutes of the game or so because they were getting beat so bad. Baker was hurt, so they put in Case Keenum, and Odell Beckham was pulled. Wasn't worth the injury per head coach Kevin Stefanski. He didn't outright say that, but you don't pull your stars with eight minutes left unless you just you just know the game is over. I mean, Odell even took his shoes off. I mean, it was a wrap. Now, I just highlighted a couple of other games. Carson Wentz battled his tail off to make that game against Baltimore interesting. I thought it was over. I mean, I thought it was flat out going to be a 30-10 kind of game, 30-17 if you're lucky. It comes down to a two-point conversion, which had the play call been better, Carson Wentz probably ties that game, and we're looking at an overtime game in which they should not have been in that game at all. It speaks to Carson Wentz's immense talent. If you don't see it, I can't help you. I, I, I don't know what to do at that point. I, I just He's battling with literally nobody. I mean, he came in the game down two starting receivers, three or four linemen, and then his backup tight end. And then his starting tight end and his starting running back both go down during the game. 
and against a very, very good Baltimore Ravens team, you're a two-point conversion away from tying it. I, I, I can't help you if you don't see the talent that Carson Wentz has clearly as a transitional and a transcendent level talent. Now, the Cowboys and the Cardinals went at it for, again, a quarter. Kyler Murray looked off. He couldn't really connect with DeAndre Hopkins at all. But luckily, he was playing the Dallas Cowboys, who had Andy Dalton basically paying Dak Prescott's contract. Because I, I said before, Dak Prescott's going to get five years, $200 million. I, I was ridiculed. I was looked at like, man, I don't know what I'm talking about. But I'm like, Deshaun Watson got 39. Dak Prescott has a better resume than Deshaun Watson. Dak Prescott has better numbers than Deshaun Watson. And people said it was the weapons and the offensive line and this, that, and the third. Those same weapons and that same offensive line was on the field against the Cardinals. The Cardinals won 38 to 10. Kyler Murray has a better record inside the AT&T Stadium this year than the Cowboys do. It was not enjoyable. Andy Dalton struggled. He was hit a lot. When he wasn't hit, he was missing targets. You can clearly tell he was looking for hits at a certain point. It, it just wasn't great. And an off Kyler Murray with only 188 yards passing dominated you 38 to 10 thanks to Kenyon Drake going for a buck 64 and two touchdowns. And then Christian Kirk only catching two passes, both for touchdowns, for an average of 43 yards. Ezekiel Elliott fumbled the ball twice in the first quarter, it felt like. It might have been the second quarter. He fumbled the ball twice in the second quarter, giving the Cardinals short fields and effectively ending the game before it really even had a chance of getting going for the Dallas Cowboys. And then the big game ended up being Titans-Texans, which Derrick Henry wakes up. So every season, King Henry gets about week eight, week nine, maybe week 10, and he'll bust a big 200-yard game, it feels like, and then he's rolling the rest of the year. Uh, Christmas came early. He did it in week six. Goes for 212, two touchdowns, and another 50-some-odd yards receiving, almost 300 to- purpose, all-purpose yards, sorry. And he seems to be on his way to rolling. Patriots lose to the Broncos, 18-12. Colts beat the Bengals in a major comeback, 31-27, when it looked like the Bengals were going to run away and hide from the Colts. And the Lions defeat the Jaguars, and the Rams get beat by the 49ers, which the 49ers controlled that game throughout. Packers-Bucks. That game started out about as interesting as a game can start out. Usually, I don't do full-week summaries. I probably won't do this ever again. But um, the Packers game against the Bucks started out about as weird as you can start out. Packers were rolling. There was a touchdown. I mean, they had a field goal. Then the, the Bucks punt. Then another touchdown. Aaron Rodgers does the Hingle McCringleberry key and P hip thrust celebration on a play that ends up getting called back. They score on a possession anyway. The Bucks get the ball back to the Packers. And you're probably thinking, you were thinking, I was thinking, the Packers were thinking, the Bucks were thinking, if they go down and score, it's 17-0, and this game is over early. And then Aaron Rodgers throws a pick six to Jamil Dean. That never happens. And then Aaron Rodgers comes back and throws another pick two passes later. Uh, that really never happens. And the Buccaneers go in a 28-0 run in the second quarter. And finished the game on a 38-0 run, absolutely dominating the Green Bay Packers. And Dominican Sue turned back the hand of the time. He was pushing Aaron Rodgers, getting personal foul penalties. It felt like the good old days. And the Packers looked from beyond mortal 
they looked flat out terrified at a certain point they don't like physical and we're starting to see that now their last five losses have been to physical teams san francisco twice tampa bay i mean they do not like physical they are not huge fans of physical and if you get physical with them they tend to not fight back but that is the recap on week six just a little news that happened before we dive into thursday night football in week seven you see the des bryant signing to the practice squad of the baltimore ravens so this signing is more i mean it's, it's pending a workout but the pending workout is more formality they checked in with him before the season started and des bryant is expected to sign with the baltimore ravens practice squad now his practice squad status is expected to be temporary he's expected to week one you know work with lamar make sure he's still in shape see how his game shape is maybe week two work with lamar see how that timing is see how effective he can be in a red zone kind of situation so don't expect to see des Brown from 2014 catching six seven eight nine passes a game that's not gonna happen but inside the 25 here comes 88 you know he runs on the field look for him hollywood brown those tight that mark andrews mark ingram to really get involved in the goal line and help lamar down there because they don't really have a lot of size at receiver des brown has always been a big bodied strong receiver and that's something he can definitely help them with at that position and now shifting to antonio brown everyone's favorite drama queen receiver he is working his way back the Seattle Seahawks are among a group of teams that are interested in him per Adam Schefter and per, you know, the Twitter page at Daytime Sports. Uh, Seattle Seahawks are the leading contender for his services. Remember the video that he worked out with Russell Wilson in the offseason and keeps his Raider helmet as and does Antonio Brown. But he's worked out with Russell Wilson in the offseason. He also has he's friends with the back of quarterback Geno Smith in seattle as well so he'll have a couple of you know landing pads a couple of people inside the building that can support him and p carroll is known for hey don't mess with the team so his tweeting might have been an issue in new england his social media antics would have been a problem in oakland or now vegas but p carroll is like hey don't hurt the team so you can go on social media you can tweet you can facebook you can instagram you can snapchat you just can't be negatively affecting the team. I mean, Brandon Marshall told a story on First Things First, where most meeting rooms you come in, it's dull, it's lack of energy, everybody's serious, everybody's always focused, or it's just completely, they're already checked out. Pete Carroll's coming in with music, loud noise, people are shooting bat basketballs and a goal that's set up in the team meeting room. I mean, it's a fun time before we really lock in and getting into the purpose of the team meeting. So I think that's an environment, especially with a guy like Russell Wilson, who can say, hey, A.B., don't come in here looking for 15 targets a game like you're in Pittsburgh because we have D.K. Metcalf. We have Tyler Lockett. We have Greg Oden. We have a running game, which is just I'm sure they're itching to get back to running the ball 40 to 45 percent of the time the way they used to. I mean, they ran the ball, I think, 52 percent of the time last season. So I'm sure that when the weather gets bad and they start traveling, that they'll get back to that more. But it won't be a situation where A.B. comes in and gets 10 catches a game like he did in Pittsburgh or like he was expected to get in Oakland. 
So that is a situation definitely to watch there. Remember, there are other suitors than the Seattle Seahawks. He's been long linked to the Baltimore Ravens as well. Uh, I'm not sure they can incorporate him and Des Bryant. That'd be ego central. But they are expected to. He's been linked to the Baltimore Ravens due to he's worked out with Lamar Jackson and his cousin, who's on the team, Marquise Hollywood Brown. So that is a situation definitely to watch. But up next, we will be shifting to Jack's pack. We'll be talking about how to make you guys some money. Alrighty, guys, and we are back and welcome in to Jack's pack. Like I said, it's our very successful NFL betting segment. Now, Last week, we had our second losing week out of six. Went two and three. We haven't had a bomb 0 and five week or a one and four week. We've had a couple of two and threes. And so that brings us this week, our total to 15, 13, and two. I'm still above 500, which means you guys, if you did every pick I did, you are making money along with me. Uh, Got burned. Like I said, we got burned on that uh, Cleveland Brown thing. That wasn't great, admittedly. Uh, The Panthers, a little too late against the Bears. Couldn't really make it interesting there. Um, and we just, you know, we did hit the Titans against the Texans. We hit the Bengals against the Colts. I said the Colts might actually, I said the Bengals might actually win that game. Unfortunately, they did not. And the Patriots' lack of practice caught up with them, and they ended up losing to the Denver Broncos, which was weird because when I was about to pick that game, my never bet a number that big brain tried to kick in, and I told myself, nah, I'll be all right. And, well, wasn't, unfortunately. But, hey, we're going to get this thing back on the road. We're still, like I said, we're still above 500. So, let's try and go for our first ever perfect week. Let's get into the new picks. Green Bay versus Houston. Houston plus three and a half. Going with Green Bay there. I think they're going to win this game by more than a touchdown, at least. Aaron Rodgers and the crew have been hearing all week. Oh, they're human. They're mortal. Look at how Aaron Rodgers played against Brady. A pissed off Aaron Rodgers is not somebody I want to attempt to defend if I'm the Houston Texans. And so I got Green Bay there covering the three and a half. Shifting to our next game, speaking of the Tampa Bay Bucks, it is Tampa Bay versus the Las Vegas Raiders. Raiders are getting four points. Doesn't matter. Go with the Buccaneers. Tampa Bay, uh, the Vegas Raiders, excuse me, have a several problems. They have their entire offensive line is working from home, basically. They're Zoom calling it. They're not on the field together because there's a possibility they have a COVID situation and a COVID outbreak. Now, as far as they know, none of the offensive linemen have tested positive. They're testing every day. They're doing everything they're supposed to do. The only reason why they're in quarantine is because the right tackle, Trent Brown, got close contact with someone. He's high risk. And as a result, they put the entire offensive line, starting offensive line rather, into the COVID list as well, COVID protocols as a precautionary measure. Now, like I just spoke about, we saw what happened to the Patriots when they had a COVID situation not practicing and offensive line versus a team like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with an amazing front seven. We just saw they just did to Aaron Rodgers. It's not a good situation for Derek Carr and that Vegas Raider offense. Up next, we have the Los Angeles Chargers, seven and a half points favorites over Jacksonville. Take the Chargers. Doesn't matter about the points. They're going to win this game by two touchdowns plus. The Chargers have an issue finishing games. They do not have an issue starting them. Jacksonville has an issue throughout the entire game. 
I think the Chargers are going to win this game 27 to 10. They're going to dominate from start to finish, and they're going to cover the seven and a half points. The next game we're going to go to is the Dallas Cowboys versus the Washington football team. It's an even. It's a literal pick em. And I almost didn't do this game. And I'm thinking if I go four and one, this is going to be the game I go one on. However, I'm going to go with the Dallas Cowboys here. And just for my football knowledge, I have to believe that the Dallas Cowboys are a better football team than Washington. I have to believe that. I have to believe that Ezekiel Elliott's going to be the best player on the field. I have to believe that Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup, CeeDee Lamb are going to just be enough to keep Andy Dalton being better than Kyle Allen and Terry McLaurin. I have to believe that Jalen Smith is the best linebacker in this game. I have to believe that Demarcus Lawrence is going to be the best defensive lineman and not Chase Young or Alden Smith. I have to believe that the Dallas Cowboys are going to win this game. If they were, I mean, I'm not sure if there was points involved, I would even get involved. But since it is a pick em, I'm going to go with the Dallas Cowboys there. And then that leaves us with Arizona plus three versus Seattle. I think the Cardinals are going to win this game. Now, Again, if it's a one or a two-point game, even a three-point game, we're good there. But I think that the Arizona Cardinals are going to win this game versus Seattle. So, obviously, I am taking them plus three versus the Seattle Seahawks. Now, just a quick recap. I would do Green Bay over Houston, Tampa Bay over Vegas, Chargers over Jacksonville, Dallas over Washington, and Arizona over Seattle. Now, up next, we'll be shifting to our NCAA football topic. Ah, welcome in to our NCAA football topic and back into the Just In Time Sports Podcast. Now, the NCAA is almost back to normal. Yes, people, it is almost back to glorious Power Five. All five conferences are back roaring in anticipation. Obviously, we've had the SEC for three or four weeks, maybe even five weeks. We've had the Big 12 and the ACC rolling, and now the Big 10 joins the fray starting Friday night. They join the fray into the season, and then we'll get the Pac-12 in a week or two. And so now we get to see Justin Fields on the field. Trevor Lawrence is the clear-cut consensus number one overall pick, but him and Justin Fields battled it out all through their high school careers to be the number one and number two quarterbacks in the country. They're from the same state. I mean, they never really ran into each other in the state because they're in two different districts and stuff like that. But those guys, you know, followed each other to different camps. They were obviously on the same recruiting paths because they're from the same state. And those guys, I believe, are going to battle it out in the pre-draft process to see who ends up the number one pick. I think it's going to be Trevor Lawrence. But Justin Fields probably going to be the number two pick, maybe no lower than three. So this would be great to see Justin Fields back on the field. We get to see Michigan or Harbaugh. Man, this is supposed to be one of his better teams at Michigan, but I don't think he can lay a finger into that Ohio State team this year. I don't think the, I don't think the big game is going to be close. It's not the last game of the season like it normally is. It's not after Thanksgiving like it normally is. So that would be interesting to see that change there. But like I said, the Big Ten is back. Full slate of games. The SEC has a full slate of games. 
the Big 12 has a full slate of games. You know, Oklahoma's trying to revise their and revive their Big 12 championship aspirations. LSU and the SEC is trying to revamp their aspirations of an SEC title. However, they'll be down their starting quarterback this Saturday as Miles Brennan is dealing with a bruise of the ribs and a knee injury. He's out for Saturday's ball game against South Carolina. And so LSU will start true freshman quarterback TJ Finley. Although the other true freshman quarterback, Max Johnson, is expected to get plays at quarterback as well in sort of a package situation because he's a little bit more agile than TJ Finley. So that'll be interesting to watch there for LSU, starting basically two freshman quarterback in a situation where you're fighting for your football lives. I mean, Alabama is crushing people. They're on pace to have a better offense than LSU's all-time historic offense last season. You've got Florida, who's still a dominant team, although still dealing with the outbreak and haven't been in their facilities in several days, thanks to 26 positive COVID tests throughout the team. So it is a situation definitely to watch there. But all in all, they've been keeping COVID relatively contained. We haven't had, I mean, Florida was a major outbreak. But like, for instance, Kansas head coach Les Miles got COVID. Nobody else on the team got it as far as we know. There was a situation in Alabama where Nick Saban had a false positive where nobody else on the team tested positive. So if we look at it this way, we're not really seeing, you know, 15 to 20 people outbreaks outside of the Florida situation, which was the fear when these guys came back on campus. So I am so glad that the Big Ten is back. It gives us a chance, like I said, to have a full slate of college football games from sun up to sundown, multiple conferences, and that'll be great to watch. Now, up next, we'll be doing our best for last, which will be a recap of the Thursday night ball game between the Philadelphia Eagles and the New York Giants. Hey, everybody, and we are back. And now we're going to do a recap of that Eagles-Giants game. What a clash. What an ending. What an everything. That game had a little bit of everything. We had a game like that a few weeks ago where I was like, my my goodness, the game had everything. It had, you know, missed kicks, blocked punts, all kind of stuff. Now, this game quite didn't have that, but it had two failed two-point conversions. It had a strip sack to end it. It had a fumble to set up a drive that ended up netting nothing because of a missed 27-yard field goal. It had a game-winning drive where a quarterback who's had his accuracy question dimes a 5'6 running back over a do-it-all jack of all trades, running safety corner, liquor linebacker, and Jabril Peppers for the game-winning drive. It had literally everything. I mean, everything you want to see out of a clash between division rivals this game had. I mean, the point spread at one point was four and a half. Other places had it at one and a half. It ended up being one. I mean, what are the odds of that? But let's just start from the beginning. Uh, Carson Wentz was dealing with the situation that, honestly... You just kind of feel bad for the guy. At a certain point, you just feel bad for him. Even if you're not an Eagles fan. I'm not an Eagles fan. I have no vested interest in the success of the Philadelphia Eagles. I like Carson Wentz, sure. But I'm, I'm not an Eagles fan. I'm not vested into that situation at any means or any purpose besides the success. I like Carson Wentz as a quarterback. And he's on there. And they said, yeah, Jason Kelsey is the last offensive lineman that's a normal starter that's there because Lane Johnson's in and out of the lineup with injuries. He played early, got nicked, came back, got nicked again, and was out. 
their only receiver he had that would have normally been starting there was Deshaun Jackson on a pitch count, who ultimately ends up getting hurt later, and hopefully his injury was not as bad as it looked. It looked like it could be one of those where he's done for the year and possibly could be looking at the back three of his career instead of the back nine. Both his running backs out. Miles Sanders is out. Both of his top tight ends are out. He has leaving a couple of injuries on defense. His play calling is questionable at best. Doug Peterson is really, I don't know if he's losing it, but it doesn't seem like he's pushing the right button at the right moment. And somehow he did it. He did it again. He did have a bad interception. He rolled right, then rolls back left, tries to flip it. I'm not even sure where he flipped it because he overthrew his target. It, it wasn't like he threw a bullet and somebody jumped in front of it. And it's like, okay, it happens. He ran to the right the play before that, though, a few days before that, and flings like a punt, basically, that Travis Fogum almost brings down. It was equally almost as intercepted. Luckily, it falls harmlessly to the ground. But then, again, he, like I said, he rolls left, tries to flip it 30 yards, give or take, and he overshoots the receiver by about 7, 8 yards, and it's intercepted. So stuff like that has to be cleaned up. But the Eagles' defense played well. They allowed a big-time catch to Golden Tate. I'm not even sure that's counting allow. Golden Tate with a very grown man catch there to score the first touchdown of the game for the New York Giants and then tie the game up at 7-7. Then it got pretty slow there. Uh, Daniel Jones with the almost best highlight of the night and turned out to be the low light of the night or the high low night when he has an 80-yard run and then the turf monster catches him at the, like the 13 or 14 and he trips and he's down by contact at the 10. Ultimately, the Giants end up scoring on the possession thanks to a pass interference call on the Eagles that put the Giants on the one and then they run it in right after that. But, I mean, Leonard Williams is on the sideline laughing at it. I had a good chuckle. People on Twitter were incredibly confused. I mean, it just looked like his body just shut down. His feet just started stumbling and he could tell he was running for all his might and Turf Monster got him and he went down Kind of hilariously at around the 10-yard line. We had Carson Wentz. Like I said, he's battling everything. And they scored a touchdown. The Giants scored about six minutes left, seven minutes left. And the Eagles come down and Carson Wentz hits Greg Ward in the end zone with like four minutes and some change left. They don't get the two-point conversion due to a very questionable play call. I probably... I don't mind the play call necessarily, although when you have a quarterback who got you down the field, I prefer to put it in their hands throwing the ball with the option to run. When you call a design run, you limit your options. You only have one option. You're going to run. I would have preferred to put it in his hands in some RPO kind of situation where you have a quick slant behind it or you have something where he can hand it off. You know, there's a hole or if there's no hole, throw the quick slant or if there's no there's neither one of the options, then you can take off. But it would give you a multitude of options. Or if you're going to run a design play where you're going to run, you have Jalen Hurts for a reason. It seems like Jalen Hurts is going to be the world's best wildcat quarterback. So why not use him in that scenario? Because he can throw the ball and just have like a tight end flare the other way or a backside slant or some sort of fade or stop route where he's running. But also the corner has to hold on the man and take somebody basically out of the play because the corner is not going to sprint up on him. Because Jalen Hurts at any moment can just stop and flip it because the two-yard line and the goal line are so close together. So I didn't like the play call using Wentz. But ultimately, you can check my Twitter timeline, at Sports. I believe I said something along the lines of 
Carson incoming Carson Wentz game winning drive with a question mark. It was more pros of a question, but it was more of a statement that if the New York Giants did not score, Wentz is going to go win that game. I texted my friends that I was like, if, if the Giants don't score, Carson Wentz is going to win this game. Exactly what happened. The Giants ultimately end up not scoring. Carson Wentz get the ball back. He got a little help from a penalty. They only hit that ultimately hurt Deshaun Jackson, which may have cost more than it was worth, honestly. And Carson Wentz, like I said, marches right down the field. Pretty efficient drive and nails Boston Scott over Jabril Peppers. And drops a absolute beautiful ball right into Jabril Peppers' hands. Let's backtrack a little bit. Evan Ingram is going to get a lot of blame in the national media for not bringing down that ball that Daniel Jones threw on the drive that ultimately set up, that led to the punt, that set up the injury to Deshaun Jackson, that set up the touchdown from Carson Wentz. I would not blame Evan Ingram wholeheartedly for that situation. A, I don't think the pass was that great. Now, I know everybody's talking about, it was a perfect pass. It was this and it was that. It wasn't because Evan Ingram had... If he didn't have full extension on his arms, it was near extension and they barely hit his fingertips. I mean, granted, you have to make that play dive if you have to, I guess would be the answer. Be like, okay, if it's that close, leap for it, dive, do what you have to do because it doesn't matter if you go score, you just have to catch it and the game's over. And ultimately he didn't do that, but the ball could have been placed a little bit closer to the body, maybe take a yard out of it. Aaron Ingram catches it on the run. Maybe he goes and score or he gets tackled, but the game's effectively over. But going back to the game winning drive, it was a work in Carson Wentz. I mean, it even almost got it did get messed up. Actually, they get all the way down to the two and on second and goal. Jason Kelsey, the last of the Giants, the last of the old heads, gets a face mask penalty, ripping some guy's helmet off 15 yards, backs it up to the 18. You're down five, so you can't just say, okay, we'll pack it in for the field goal here. And worst kind of worst, we'll get three, go to overtime. I'm thinking, I don't know about the Eagles getting it now because you got two downs, three downs to get 18 yards, and the Giants know you have to score. You have to score a touchdown to beat them. And then on the first play, Carson wins by a little time. Boston Scott finishes his route. He drops it right over Joel Pepper's shoulder, over Boston Scott to his outside shoulder. It is a perfectly dropped ball, and it is a touchdown. And the fans are going crazy. The limited fans that are there, I'm sitting there like, holy crap. Carson Wentz actually pulled this off. It was spectacular to see. I'm glad that it happened. Um, as for them, they moved to 2-4-1, and one, currently leading the NFC East. The worst division in football easily. It could possibly be the worst division in NFL history. I would be very interested to see the win percentage just after the season and compare it to other divisions and see it might be the worst division in NFL history. But the Philadelphia Eagles, like I said, moved to 2-4-1, and, and they are the division winner, leader right this second, pending Dallas plays, Dallas plays Washington this Sunday. So if Dallas wins, they'll have three wins, which will move them back in front of Philly. If they lose, they'll be 2-5. and five. And Philly will be leading the division at 2-4-1. And, and the New York Giants and the Washington football team will both be one win and five or six losses. This division is bad. But congratulations to the Eagles tonight. Daniel Jones fumbled on the last possession because he always fumbles, honestly. He, I mean, he makes Zeke look like a bank vault. But 
other than that, that wraps up today's show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Remember, you can find the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And definitely follow the Twitter page at Daytime Sports for breaking news and the occasional live tweeting situation like a World Series game or the game tonight. Now, I hope you guys sit back. Remember the Twitter page at Daytime Sports. Sorry about that. But I hope you guys enjoyed it. And I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. This is your host, Justin Jackson, signing out.